Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts Don Abernathy and Jeff Kopsa. Welcome everybody to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II based podcast. And thanks for hanging out with us for another episode. Thanks for being patient. Actually, no, not nay. Not thank you for being patient because we are actually getting more episodes out at a quicker pace than we once did. So thanks to us for getting more content out to you guys, the uh, average listener. So, Jeff, how are you doing, my friend? Great, great. I'm ready for another exciting episode. Yeah, me too. Um, you you had to stop and get Petro and your DeSoto? <laughs> yeah, I had to get some motion lotion. Yeah. How's the DeSoto treating you, fella? Man, I, it, it drives like a dream, man. I, just, I love driving that car so much. And, you know, I don't go far in it. I live about four miles outside of town. So, Sundays when I'm at the at the hangar here or doing a podcast is kind of when I drive it. But, you know, every time I drive it, I'm in a parade. People are honking, they're waving. I actually caused an accident outside of the high school one day. Oh, now you know it feels like to be a hot chick crossing the street. (laughs) (laughs) Now, do you keep bias ply like air correct tires on that? Or do you have modern day tires? I mean, how, how far do you go with that thing? Um, yeah, so the guy that I bought it from, he actually replaced the original set of tires. He went with the original, you know, the, the big fat white walls. Mm-hmm. They're not, you can tell when you're driving it, it's not a modern tire. Sure. Well, I mean, but, not only that, but I'm sure it takes getting used to, I'm, I'm assuming they didn't upgrade the brakes. You probably got drums all the way around. No. Yeah. Yeah. Little, little, little brake cylinders and, uh, no power steering. Is that thing three know? on the tree? So actually it's four speed, but it's a fluid drive. So, um, you know, if you're familiar and, and they came out t- kind of like in the late forties, sure. you know, they had the hydromatics and, you know, they call them slushomatics. Uh, and then Chrysler had the fluid drive. So first and second is just up on the tree and you basically shift. Once it reaches a certain RPM, you just let off the accelerator, you'll feel it shift and you go again. And now you're in second and then you just shift down on the tree and now you're in third and same thing you let off hit a little more now you're in fourth and it was designed to where you didn't have to sit and ride the clutch all day long but you do have to downshift when you're slowing down right nope nope you can leave it in high third fourth gear come to a complete stop never hit the clutch and and go again you're just in third it doesn't stall out like when you're taking off Nope. nope it's it's it drives like an automatic like i can't leave it in gear on it on an incline and it and it won't roll. It'll still roll. It's huh. like it's like an automatic transmission. That's it's it's just weird though that you can keep it in third and then stop and then take off in right. third and without. I'm sure it probably doesn't have the the get up and go. Not that it has a whole right. lot of get up and go, but it probably even slower to go. It's probably more like tractor speed at that pace, minus all yeah. the extra torque. It's the same exact motor you see in like three quarter time weapons carriers and the ambulances from World War II. It's really? the same inline. It's the same exact motor. Inline six, yeah. huh? Mm-hmm. Now, was that upgraded to twelve volt at some point, or is it still running off? What was it, nine volt back in the day? Six volt? There's, it's a six. It's a six volt positive ground system. What positive ground? Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Hey, you can you can run it either way. I, when I bought it, they had it set up as negative ground, so I put it back to positive ground and repolarized it, which you basically just hot wire it. Park <laughs> <laughs> it. You basically you arc it. Wow. And then you repolarize the generator. So yeah, it's just it's weird, but you start it every couple of days and man it runs like a champ, you know. 
Now, for those watching on the YouTube channel, um, who's that behind you there? Is that, I see that's a, obviously it's a mannequin. Is that a standard M1 helmet on him or is that the one with the uh, flip up ear flaps? Yeah, it's got the ear flaps on. I'm, nice. I'm glad you mentioned that. So this is this is one of the new uh, exhibits I'm building at the Highland X Air Museum. So this is like our east wall. And this is all going to be redone. If you're familiar with Oak Clubs in, in England during World War II or, or any scene from like 12 o'clock high where it's a big white brick you know wall with the 8th Air Force mural painted on it, all the missions and everything, that's what this wall is going to turn into. But right now... It's just uh, basically a Norden bomb site, some and some oxygen uh, bottles, and there's a ball turret uh, site and a big Sperry turret uh, or a Sperry uh, gun site for B24. Um, and then yeah, our two mannequins. We got one guy kind of dressed this way. Yeah, in the <laughs> like flight suit. And then yeah, and then the other guy like a like a gunner with the ear flaps and the fleece lining and everything. How so. that that leather looks like it's just flaking off at at a alarming rate yeah yeah uh it's in pretty bad shape but we actually just found another set of trousers in the collection that are like immaculate so we'll we'll probably eventually change him out <laughs> is there a, a way to i don't want to say preserve but to slow down that flaking is there like can you like scotch guard it but i'm sure that would just kill the what values in it is there a way to prevent so, the the flaking no yeah something needs to be done i mean it, it is an artifact so it's not it's not like it's a value thing the museum's not going to sell it you sure. definitely need the longevity out of it so i use for all my stuff like flight helmets or gloves um or either like the leather like navigator case i use the hubert's uh shoe grease that you get when you buy your boondockers okay um, yeah it, it, you can i guess i don't know if it comes with it or if it's an option to buy it separate i've got a couple cans of it. it's the same stuff they use back then it's like a saddle soap you know, what if I told you that Ralph Lauren makes or made damn near 100, I want to say 98% accurate boondockers for hipsters to wear. I could, I could buy that. I would, like the rough outs. Yes. No. Um, yes. Oh. But to the Marine Corps specs without the rivets on them. Okay. The reason I say 99% accurate is because they did not go as far as putting the nails in the sole, <laughs> so, yeah. but they actually have the corded sole. I was, I was actually, a lot of times when I go on eBay, I will um, just put in generic terms, kind of like something, somebody who would post something that they don't know what they have. So instead of looking for a haversack or a musette bag, I'll type in World War II backpack or battle pack, okay. and you'll find stuff for a... Uh, cheaper cost simply because the person who's putting it up there doesn't know what they have. And so sometimes it'll be overpriced or sometimes it'll be way underpriced. And so I just make it a habit every once in a while. I'll just go on eBay and just type that in. And I typed in boondockers and I came across some that were not made by, actually I found a pair that are made by Red Wing, but more importantly, and I'm trying to pull them up now, there were some made by Ralph Lauren. Now, the ridiculous part is, since they're made by Ralph Lauren, they're retailing for $500. <laughs> so they're not a good substitute for World War II impressions or at the front when you can go on there and get theirs for 99 bucks. But I'm looking at them, and they are dead ringers. Um, that, like I said, they actually have the corded soles, the, the same exact um, sole print. That, what about the laces? What are the laces look like? I'm trying to find one. I'm browsing through eBay now. I thought I had some on here. Um here there, Ralph Lauren. Okay, I'm going to hold this up to the camera, so this ain't going to help you guys who are not watching, but you have to go on YouTube. So here is 
Oh, of course, now my ring light's on there. See that? Like, ah, wow. Now, hold on. Wait till you see the soles on these things. Yeah, so here's the side view. They have the, the white stitching in the right spot. The soles are the same color. They have the same shoelaces. Here's the overview. And they're not like the uh, What Price Glory that are super thin. These look like... Now, here, actually, uh, these, interestingly enough, have the nails on the bridge of the foot, but not around the horn of the shoe. So this is Look one version. That. Now, they have wow. another version of Ralph Lauren where the soles have the different type, the accorded soles with, like, the, the rings on them. Uh-huh. And, um, but, yeah, so it's interesting. Ralph Lauren makes rough outs and boondockers for hipsters but they sell them for five hundred dollars and i wouldn't be surprised if it's like the same manufacturer who makes the rough outs for our, our websites but once again the biggest difference is a lot of them don't have the nails in the sole but other than that the treads are perfect and too bad they go for 500 because if they went for like 150 they'd be a perfect substitute for people who can't afford 300 ones but um, right. they are i mean spitting image so if you want a good laugh to yourself just go on ebay type in boondockers um, there's a lot of modern day work boots that are called boondockers, but then you'll find the ones by Ralph Lauren and then Red Wing makes a pair, but they're super expensive too. And they look dead nuts on. I actually found a guy who was selling a pair of used ones and the current price is going for like 260, but then they quickly got to 250. I'm like, well, at that point you just go buy them from, you know, World War II impressions and have the exact correct ones. But it's interesting that that appearance of boot got so trendy that Ralph Lauren made a pair Right, and I guess he's selling enough to justify making enough of them. I can't remember who it was. There was a famous fashion designer who teamed up with um, PF Flyers, and they remade a pair of the olive drab green PF. They remade the jungle shoe. They looked huh. just like the shoes that the Raiders and the Merle Marauders wore, except for they were the, the height of your normal Chuck Taylors. They weren't the knee-high ones. But, oh, right. but those things were going for like $700 because they were limited edition and they had to, the fashion designer's name taped onto them. Right. And ever since they came out with those, coincidentally, uh, PF Flyers stopped making the normal olive drab green ones. Because <laughs> I did see a video where somebody got a hold of the olive drab green ones and then they just took the PF Flyer patch off and they, paint, they dyed and painted the soles black and they basically created their own version for doing reenactments. But uh, uh-huh. you can look all over, and you will not—you'll be hard pressed to find a pair of brand new. If, even if you go on uh, PF Flyers website, you can order custom ones, but they do not offer the olive drab, probably because of that exclusive contract they had with that fashion designer. Yeah. Here's something we don't get to do too often on this podcast. I want to play this little news clip real quick. Happy birthday to this World War II vet out of Cincinnati, hitting 104 years old. New tonight, a surprise birthday parade for a local hero. We've seen a lot of these during the pandemic, but maybe never quite this big for a man reaching this kind of milestone. This birthday parade comes complete with a marching band. It's so nice when you can get a large crowd to really rally behind the veterans because they've done so much for us. This crowd is coming in at about 100 vehicles deep. Because Robert Doolin is impressive. He's 104 years old. Even more impressive is his service in World War II. When I got shot down, we were running away from the plane. Trying to escape, he traded his St. X class of 1935 ring for a sandwich. 
I couldn't be wearing a ring with English printing on it. Doolin was captured by the Gestapo, eventually moved to Stalag prison camp. He was freed by Patton after more than one year in 1945. Remember that class ring? When he came home, a classmate called the manufacturer. Make me a brand new ring, exactly like the other in 1935. St. X may hang around his neck now to keep it close to his heart. He's been back so many times, talked with our kids about his experiences. Uh, there's no place we'd rather be right now. Bob Doolin can say the same. I think it's great. <laughs> I'd like to see 105. Heck yeah. We asked Now, Mr. Bob Doolin is located in Cincinnati, Ohio. And um, I'm going to put a little phone call into Xavier High School <laughs> to see if I can get this gentleman's phone number. But yeah. more importantly, I did some Google searching, and I do what I always do. I went on Facebook, and I found a Facebook group out of Cincinnati, Ohio called I Got... IGY6, I got your six with a kiss on the cheek and other veterans adventures. And they have a birthday operation coming up for a gentleman next month. And they also did something for this Mr. Bob Doolin guy. So I've reached out to them to see if they can kind of help maybe send some veterans our, day, our way to get some interviews and get them digitized, get their stories out there. Um, so hopefully here soon we can get some more uh, veteran interviews going on here. But I think it's super awesome what these guys are doing all through Hamilton County and outside of Cincinnati and through um, Ohio, they just find these veterans and throw, you know, drive-by birthday parades for them and things like that. It's pretty damn cool. Yeah. yeah. So a happy 104th to uh, Bob Doolin of the 8th Air Force. So, yep, I'm going to head out that did way. You find any more, uh, did you, could you find any more information about that particular when he was shot down or what aircraft? He was I, like no, I just, I basically found this like 10, uh, 10 minutes before we went on the air. So that's why I haven't reached out to, you know, I literally was doing show prep, saw this news story, found the Facebook page, sent them a message. Sadly, there's no, for a community like this, they only have 94 members, but there's no message button. So I had to post up what I hate doing. People think I'm just trying to get some, you know, publicity. I'm like posting a public page about, hey, I'm looking for interviews, but they didn't have an option to send a private message on here, which I wish they would have, because I would have much rather preferred to do it that way. But I will put my pride on the line and, you know, post a, you know, a semi-pestering comment on there if it sends people our way. So, and for those you listen, if you anybody, you know, family, neighbors, otherwise, um, who may be interested in doing an interview, email us at mailcall at WTSPWorldWar2.com. So, Jeff, um, you... I know you covered the things you had going on behind you. Have anything else going on at the museum that you wanted to get out of the way before we get a little further into what we're going to do tonight? Oh yeah. I'd like to kind of brag on, on our team and our squadron here. We just, uh, we just hosted a record crowd for the 29th annual blue bonnet air show right here in Burnett. Uh, it was just this past Saturday, 20 March. Uh, we typically, you know, it's kind of bounced around the year a little bit. It used to be in April. I mean, it's September and you know, September, 2020 just wasn't going to happen. So we pushed it to the right again. To, to this past weekend and yeah record crowd it was incredible to see uh, we had you know the a10 air force thunderbird demonstration team coming back had a couple a10s in the air doing their thing um the uh, falcon flight i don't know how many snjs and t6s uh we had that's all brother you know of course that's done mm-hmm. the famous c47 um that led all of the other c47s at d-day that's been restored and painted back to its d-day markings um that actually uh, they had a couple guys jump out of that 
And one guy, the last jumper, had like a 1,200 square foot American flag, nice. you know, unfurled as he's coming down while the anthem is, is being played. That's kind of how we kicked it off. Um, but yeah, then of course the Air Force brought a P-51 to kind of do a heritage flight with the A-10s. Um, we had our uh, the Devil Dog, uh, you know, we'll just the big blue B-25, but it's, mm-hmm. I guess technically a PBJ, the Marine Corps. Uh, version of the B-25, and and then my ground forces, you know, kind of had their uh, inaugural run, if you want to say, at the air show here is a new living history group that I'm building, and uh, kind of pulled from a different, a whole bunch of different places in the state, really. I mean, I had guys coming from North Texas, from uh, Houston, from San Antonio area. Um, what were their primary so impressions? Were they, doing air, were they doing Air Corps impressions? So I did Air Corps, and one other guy did Air Corps, and then I had the, the Army-recognized General Patton Rain actor. Uh, you can look him up on the internet, Denny Hare. He's a friend of mine. He came out with a couple guys to do his thing. Uh, then I had um, a girl, a couple girls that sing. They were in Army WAC uniforms. I had Navy Wave. Uh, I had, of course, Roger the Riveter there. Um, so we were just a little bit of everything. We did weapon demos. Nice. You know, we demoed the... Uh, Springfield, the Grand, the Carbine, a BAR, uh, the Trench Gun, and uh, then one of the we had two German reenactors there. One guy did his uh, his M31 Sumi with the drum mag on it, so um, you know people got to hear some some live Class Three stuff. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah, a, a semi cheap and easy impression. Um, if you're trying to throw more um, background noise into like an Army Air Corps type thing. Just get some guys and some um, HBTs and have them flip their bill of cap up like this. And you got yourself ground crew. <laughs> just put a couple of wrenches <laughs> in their hands and they're good to go. So uh, yeah. that's kind of what we did with some of our guys when we did the Memphis Bell. We all had our air uniforms on and then a couple of guys just put on their HBTs and flipped the bills up on their hat. And went, it's air crew. There you go. Yeah. Don't need web yeah. gear or anything. Maybe a wrench and a pouch and a toolbox. If you can find one at a thrift store somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. But congrats. So, yeah, it's, been fun. it's been great. You know, got some new recruits in and, and got to show off some, some of what we can do here at this little, this little museum. And, you know, for, for a town our size, we, we basically had almost just as many people that live here that showed up for the air show. That's awesome. It was pretty big. We were pushing, uh, last I heard, it was somewhere about 4,500. Wow. And that's, that was a lot of people. That's great to hear, especially coming off yeah. of, uh, with all the craziness and all the lockdowns that have been in place. Um, yeah. That's definitely much needed. And as we've talked about in the past, um, how, you know, kind of things are hurting as far as, uh, as um, attendance and living history. Real quick, uh, we're talking about... Uh, Mr. Bob there was celebrating his 104th birthday. And I got to thinking in the eight minutes of show prep that I did on this. In our short time on the big blue planet, we've experienced a lot of things. We've experienced going from dial-up internet to high-speed internet to flip phones to smartphones. But in his 104 years on his planet, what are some of the most groundbreaking inventions that this guy has seen in his lifetime? Um, let's just start back from the beginning. I won't read through all these cause there's so many of them, but I'm just going to go through them at random. Uh, 1914, the motorized movie camera. So it was right around the time he was born. 1915 Pyrex came out glassware before that. I mean, think about how do you cook a casserole without Pyrex? And we know that, you know, 
1916, the electric power drill. 1917, radio tuners. Um, 1919, a pop-up toaster, which I don't think the pop-up toaster has changed much since 1919. 1920s, the hair dryer. 1921, the modern lie detector. Uh, 44 kidney dialysis machines, clock radios, disposable diapers. The first page was in 1948. I'd hate to see how big that son of a gun was. <laughs> um, alkaline batteries were 1950, but I, I have a little, I have a little caveat with that because how are you going to say that the first alkaline battery was made 1950 when the EE8 telephone ran off of two D batteries? Were they right. not alkaline? Were they made of like liquid something else? Something else, maybe, yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe alkaline is a uh, patented or copywritten kind of like the difference between a hot tub and a sauna. I don't know, yeah. but clearly the technology of what that was was around before then. Because um, well, well, I mean, we had flashlights in the first World War. Didn't yeah. We? So, but maybe they. I don't know. I didn't. Maybe they were made up of something a different type of acid, or I don't know. Nineteen fifty-one power steering. Okay. Um, let's just fast forward a few years. Uh, 1960, uh, the Kodak Instamatic. 1963, um, plasma television. 1964. What's that? Space travel. Yeah. Well, like I said, I, I'm just skipping Velcro, around here. Plastic. Black and Decker cordless drill. Uh, World Wide Web in 1989, 1990. The Nintendo Game Boy. 91. Super Nintendo. How did the Game Boy come out before Super Nintendo? Uh, Palm Pilot, um, the Dyson vacuum cleaner, 93. Uh, I mean, basically, this guy has seen everything. Obviously, the telephone, modern cars, uh, the digital thermometer, 1970. Uh, it, Commodore 64, let's not forget about that. <laughs> the Sony Super VHS. That is, there's just so much. I mean, we want to talk about, oh, when we were kids, we didn't have the internet. When this guy was a kid, they didn't have anything. They had open stick. <laughs> uh, you but, know, my dad often says that, my, my dad was born in 1950. He said, you know, there will never be another century like the 20th century. No. There, there will never be a span of 100 years where we went from pioneering flight to, you know, what we have today you know and and just a short amount of time anything that we do now and he makes a great point said we've already invented everything all we do now is invent um improvements of what we already have mm -hmm. but and and that's probably it may not be the best statement it may not be accurate especially with like medical technology like i'm sure there's breakthroughs that we've never had before but but when you go from like free penicillin yeah you know, right and things like that, like guys it's in the still iron really lungs. just an improvement. Yeah, we've got different surgeries that we can do and all these crazy things, but what have we really invented? And, and maybe there's somebody else that has a great answer to that, but to me, what ha what has been for the 21st century that's not just an improvement or, you know, an advancement of something that didn't already exist? You know, but the 19th century, or I mean, I'm sorry, the 20th century, you could say that. A lot of stuff just didn't even exist before now, this guy was born. Now I live in a swamp. I live in Florida. Could you imagine living down here before the advent of air conditioning and mosquito control? <laughs> we have what we call the Lee County air force and they will fly over in Hueys, like Vietnam air Hueys and then like Cessna's and they literally spray 
and all the undeveloped areas for mosquitoes. And then we have trucks with a giant triangle net on the back and they drive around the communities misting for mosquitoes. I cannot imagine living down here before mosquito control and air conditioning. It would be insane. Like, like the town I live in across the river, Thomas Edison and Henry Ford and, and Firestone all had vacation houses down here. And back Hmm. in their day, there was, you know, you go over to the Edison house and there's a ceiling fan that he built and it's still running to this day. Um, it's pretty crazy, but let's, uh, we kind of hit around about this. I think a little bit of last podcast. Let's talk about some world war two movies, good and bad. Do you have a list or I'll let you go first. You want to throw one out? Um, let's go with a good one. If you're uh-huh. talking to somebody, they say, Hey, what's a, I really never really get too much into world war two movie or TV series. Uh, what's a good one. What's one you think everybody would to ease their way into it to start them out. It's funny you ask that. I actually had a colleague that asked me that same exact question. Uh, she sent me an email. She said, hey, she said, I really need to catch up on my Pacific War history. What are some movies that I, and she goes from all decades, you know, what are some? And, and, you know, I mean, one of my all time favorites is probably um, as dorky as it's going to sound. I just love seeing to be with you. And that's not when you say, hey, this is how it looks. This is not, this is the accurate one, <laughs> you know. But it's just a good, to me, it's just kind of a good, wholesome war movie. Um, and maybe I'm partial to John Wayne. I don't know. I just, I grew up with it. But that definitely hits one of my, and Patton, you know, they're, they're definitely up there as some of my favorite entertainment movies. Not no. like, okay, you need to watch this and learn from it. Now, do you think some of those older movies like Sanzi Wojima or even Patton, um, if, because let's, let's face it, um, nowadays our movies are straight good to the action right now. We don't have time to waste with, um, drawn out plot line, character development. People don't have the attention span. Do you think some of those older movies, the, uh, that long burn, uh, might have, give them trouble you know, getting interested in the concept. Absolutely. I mean, you got to hit people within six seconds or they're going to swipe to the left or swipe down or whatever on their phone. I mean, you got to hit them quick, but you know, that's, that's how movies were back then. And if you're trying to understand history, then you kind of have to get into that mindset. You can't look at history through a contemporary lens. It's just not going to work. Sure. And, and, you know, I actually I read a great article from Turner Classic Movies about doing just that, how they're they're making a push of uh, all these movies that are considered, you know, racist and, um, you know, demeaning and all these things in today's world. While they may be in today's world, they weren't then. So this is the reason we need to highlight this and look at it in that perspective, not how we see things today. You know how I knew I was just re reminded last two weekends ago that we have jumped the shark as a society. I was watching a rerun of the office. I know I wasn't aware of it at the moment, but it was on MTV and I wasn't aware it was on MTV until right after that ended a big disclaimer came up on the screen. It said something along the lines of this motion picture is dated and contains, um, old school thinking and negative depictions of cultures that may not be suitable for today's viewers. And I'm thinking, Ooh, 
what channel? I, I hit pause and I was like, what channel? Oh, MTV. And I didn't want to look at the movie title. I'm like, what are they getting ready to play Blazing Saddles? <laughs> the movie that they're playing that was outdated and contains racist depictions of other people's culture was came out in 1994. No, I'm sorry, 1997. Because Friday came out in 1996 and had Chris Tucker. That was his breakthrough role. This movie that MTV needed to put a warning up was a movie that came out in 1997 or 98, which at the time, a movie that had two leading actors of a minority persuasion was few and far between. It was Rush Hour. The main characters is an African-American and a Chinese uh, immigrant, Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker. You have a movie with a black man and a Chinese stuntman and they put a disclaimer up in front of it that it has inappropriate racial <laughs> epithets. It's like, really? Now, yeah. I mean, I went on to watch it, and there was, you know, you had the stereotypical Chinese people with the cameras down in front of, uh, you know, in Hollywood taking pictures of everything with the, the Asian-style music in the background. But it wasn't like the banter that they would say was considered inappropriate was Chris Tucker and Jackie Chan tongue-in-cheeking making fun of each other's cultures it wasn't like it was you know big glasses buck teeth sort of thing out of the 40s it's like really that rush hour needs a disclaimer now that's how sensitive we got so i just i just looked at laughed and of course i watched a movie but um if someone came up to me and they're just getting into it and i know this is going to annoy a lot of the diehard world war ii living historians the ones who like to throw the phrase bandwagon a brother out there but i think band of brothers is a good way to get people who have no real foot in that water because one it's chopped into hour-long segments it's easily digestible two the character development is done in such a way that it's almost soap opera and i'm not saying that as a as a put down but they First three or four episodes of them at boot camp. They're building character development so you can learn who, by the end of the series, you give a shit when these guys get hit, when Garnier and Joe Toy lose their leg. It, it affects you in a way. And so, like, if you're a guy and, and the wife who really doesn't care about the subject, if, she, if she's, you know, everybody who's married has the shows that you have to watch, quote-unquote, by proxy. <laughs> and so, you know, if you're a lady's watching you know, whatever housewives or investigation discovery. A lot of times you end up watching these shows by proxy because you're sitting on the couch with them. But I think, um, a child or a spouse or someone who's really not into the theory of world war two or world war two themed stuff. Just if they sit there and watch all 12 episodes, just the character development and the fact that these gentlemen really existed and, and the beautiful touch about that, that I really wish they would have done on the Pacific was the interviews at the beginning of each episode with the survivors. Obviously the Pacific was 15 years later and a lot more of those guys had since passed away. But one of the, my favorite parts of that series is before the theme song there, there's one lung McClung telling what happens. That kind of leads up the, there's Dick winters telling what happens. And so just having that, Holy crap, that was the guy at the beginning. It really, it really helps bring people into that mind state and, and, and piques their interest. I completely, I completely agree with you because my wife, if we don't watch Band of Brothers, we typically watch it around like late November into December. 
It's just like it's become a tradition. I mean, we always watch White Christmas on Christmas Eve. And we just, as soon as it starts getting cold, cold enough to where we'll build a fire in the fireplace. Mm-hmm. I, I can't watch the Bastogne and the Foy episodes yeah. without a fire in the fireplace. Got to be cold, you know, outside. And if we don't watch it, man, she'll start like jonesing for it. <laughs> That's awesome. I have, it, it is. And, and it doesn't matter how many times we've seen it now. The same scenes impact her the same way. She's still going to be crying. You know, I mean, it, 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 you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, that is probably, that's probably like the obvious, that's the one. I mean, I think Saving Private Ryan did that for a lot of people too. Um, you know, I remember seeing that in theaters and walking out and it was just like, you could hear somebody blink across the street. It was just silence. Like you just didn't even know. You'd never seen anything like that before in cinema. Now it's like, oh, whatever, who cares? I mean, kids growing up today, Saving Private Ryan wouldn't impress them. You know, because this is in everything. Yeah. Um, oh, I, I played, I played uh, Medal of Honor. I played Call of Duty, World War Two. I, <laughs> I went through the landings. The the, the yeah. one downside, if you want the person who's never seen Save It Private Ryan to keep that, I don't want to say naivete, but I want to keep the, the lust for it. When they look at you and say, "Is this based on a true story?" Just say, "Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> Let them think that Private Ryan existed at least until three days later. And then you can explain to them, well, no, there's a paragraph in Band of Brothers about the Ninsky, about a guy whose last name was Ninsky. He was the inspiration for this. Ryan didn't really exist, but there was a guy. They quickly found him. But this did happen. And then that will open up the doorway to explain about the Sullivan brothers. And that's why the Navy now no longer transports more, you know, two or more siblings on one ship because Five of them died in one sinking. And so, um, so yeah, let's go. Let's flip the script a little bit. Let's go worst. What is your opinion of a horrible World War II movie? And and we don't have to go, you know, obviously we don't have to go super cliche like they saved Hitler's brain or anything dumb like that. Um, you know, I, the first one that comes to mind is Wind Talkers. Yes. I just love busting on windtalkers, and I know a guy that who worked on it, and, and he'll, he'll be the first one to make all the windbreakers. It's funny you bring that up because um, there are two or three episodes back uh, when I had a gentleman on out of California, um, that movie came up. Um, there was a young we had I had two reenactors on that episode, and there was a younger cat on there, and he brought that up, and I was like, oh, and I just cringe. Yeah, everything from him wearing Nicholas Cage wearing his dog tags as a choker, <laughs> to just and and like um, I I feel so bad because I forget his name. The gentleman from California pointed out. I said, yeah, but the one good thing about Wind Talkers is it did bring recognition to the Code Talkers and to the Native Americans. He said, exactly. especially out in California and on the West Coast, where a lot of their families still live today, and you know people migrated around. He said. Um, at a lot of their events, some of their family members will show up, and so they were they, they were thrilled because you know they don't know any better because they just here's a cool story about my grandfather's. But as a reenactor and historian, yeah, that that movie hurts my teeth. I I watched it the first time I saw it was when it came out before I got into all this, and I didn't think it was a bad movie. And then I went back and I was like, ooh, yeah, not so much. Same for me. I enjoyed it the first time I saw it. That my my son loves it, and it's just like every time he's watching, like I can't look. <laughs> You know, I, I I hate to put this on a worst. I don't think it deserves on a worst list. But for me, 
Um, I'm not going to put this on a worst list per se. I'm going to put this on a list of not as good as I wanted it to be. And I even went back and revisited it, hoping that now that I knew a little bit more about the subject after I got into World War II and especially the Pacific. You can say Pearl Harbor. It's okay. No, no, that's on the worst one. This is this one is <laughs> this one's straddling the middle, and this might be a little controversial statement. Okay, the thin red line was not as good as it was supposed uh, to be. I agree. I totally agree. I, I so want so much movie. more out of that. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking at the screenshot of the trailer. They have the Holly liners. Their uniforms are on point. Yeah. It just the story didn't get me to where I wanted it to take me. Uh, the whole yep. thing of him hanging out with the um, indigenous people, it was just kind of here and there. Um, the plot, I don't know. It's just like the plot line was confusing. I've seen it I probably three or four times. I still couldn't tell you what the movie's about. No. I... <laughs> and so let me tell you about that one. So you a couple episodes ago, or I don't know, maybe it was the last episode, when, when I, we were showing off some of our artifacts. And I went into that Marine Corps, you know, garrison cap and the Raider patch, the guy that gave it to me. So yeah, when did that movie come out? Like Thin Red Lion came out in 1998. 98, here, okay. Here so, is the description real quick. Here is the description, and I could have never made this out. In 1942, Private Witt is a U.S. Army ambassador living peacefully with the locals in a small uh, Pacific island discovered by his commanding officer, Sergeant Welsh, I, uh, played by Sean Penn. Wit is forced to resume his active duty training for the Battle of Guadalcanal as Wit and his unit more land on the island. The American troops must, uh, I'm sorry, the American troops mount for an assault on an entrenched Japanese position. First and foremost, I never knew he was an ambassador. I just thought he was AWOL. <laughs> I thought he said, fuck it, I'm going AWOL. Yeah. I, I, wow. He's okay, an yeah. army ambassador. Uh, no, I'm sorry. See, I can't read. He's an army absconder. Oh, okay. Absconder. Why don't you say he's a gold brick or a layabout? So he's an army absconder living peacefully with the locals <laughs> in a small Pacific island discovered by his commanding officers. So let's say the guy's AWOL. Right. Don't call him an absconder. <laughs> <laughs> so when I... Uh... When I first heard about that movie coming out, I got so pumped because this is right around the time that I was hanging out with Bob Cloud, my neighbor, like every day walking out from school. He's telling me stories about Guadalcanal and you know, all this cool stuff. And I'm thinking, man, you know, Saving Private Ryan just came out in 96. Mm-hmm. So, and I remember when after Saving Private Ryan, I was like, man, I hope they do something just like this, but in the Pacific. Like, that would be yep. awesome. And then when it was Guadalcanal, I was like, oh, hell my yeah. Gosh. Yes, and and then I had to ask him. I said, I didn't even know the army was on Guadalcanal. You know, I was a teenager. Like, really, the army was there too? Even better! Oh my gosh! And then it was just like at the end, you're like, that that's 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 it. That's the that's the movie. <laughs> I know, man. That that one. In the cast in this thing, I mean, you got Sean Penn, Sean, uh, John C. Riley, um, Jim Caviezel. Uh, yeah, the guy who played in. Um, uh, the pianist, um, Adrian Brody. It's got uh, John Cusack's in it. George Clooney's in it. Um, Michael Rappaport's in this movie. It's yeah. got such a huge cast. I mean, it has 
so, so many people in this movie, and it's such a letdown. It's like you want so hard to like this movie. And it's just like, come on. So it's not a, it's once again, it doesn't fall in my worst movies of all time, but it definitely falls in my biggest, one of my biggest letdowns that I really want to like, but I just can't bring. Interestingly enough, it is listed on the Inquirer magazine's list of top 25 World War II movies. Just, just goes to show me that they're based strictly on cast and they don't know anything about World War II movies. Wow. Yep. So did you list a bad one? No. Well, my, the 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 wind. wind oh yeah, wind talkers, wind, windbreakers. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So let's go with another favorite. Or quality. Uh, Twelve o'clock high. Twelve o'clock high. Yeah. For those who've never seen Twelve o'clock high, give us a quick little breakdown if you can remember. So um, Gregory Peck and. Um, Oh gosh, the guy that played General Waverly in White Christmas. Uh, it'll come to me. Anyway, um, the guy that plays General Waverly in White Christmas, whatever his name is, he's a major. And he the movie was filmed in 1949, and it's kind of supposed to take place in 1949. He goes to the old airbase, you know, on a bicycle, he rides up there, and he finds, if you're familiar with the movie at all, there's a specific mug that they would have up on the fireplace mantle in the Oak club. And when they turned the mug around to where it was like looking at the wall, that meant there was a mission tomorrow. So he sees a mug, an identical mug in like his old antique store. And he goes, Oh, you know, strikes a memory. So he buys it. Talking about Gregory Peck, not Gregory Peck. The other guy, Hugh, uh, Hugh Mallory. No, Gary Merrill. No. Uh, well, these are like the top, the main lesson. Dean Jagger, Millard Mitchell. Dean Jagger. Dean That's Jagger. Dean okay. Jagger. He made. He Dean played Major Jagger. Stovall. Made, yeah, Major Stovall. He was the guy from White Christmas. He was a general in White Christmas. And he's been in a lot of other things. But anyway, yes, Dean Jagger, his character, the Major. So he rides his bicycle to the old, you know, uh, air base there. And he walks up by one of the hard stands. And then all of a sudden, all that tall grass starts blowing. As if it's you know prop wash from sure. 17, and then that's when he goes back to when he worked with Gregory Peck, and I, I want to say Gregory Peck played a brigadier general, General Savage. Yeah, General Savage. Okay, so yeah, he kind of has to take over this group of guys um, that are just they're worn out. Go ahead, my daughter's interrupting. Go ahead. Oh, okay, um, and he, and it's a fictitious bomb group. I think it's like the 918th and. He has to kind of turn it around. They don't like him. You know, he's a real hard case, and they're used to lounging around, whatever. And uh, so he turns it around. And, and, and of course, Major uh, Stovall is, is kind of witnessing all of this. You know, he kind of plays his adjutant. So he kind of sees this turnaround as this new guy comes in. And um, But really what it focuses on, it really was one of the first movies that was based around PTSD. Oh, okay. Because Gregory Peck becomes a victim of it, just like the rest of this bomb group. You know, he's pushing them, pushing them, pushing them, and then he starts flying these missions, and then he just collapses. And you know, towards the end, they're basically interviewing him, and he just he just kind of went flat crazy. Um, and that's when they started seeing what they were doing to these to these young crewmen. You know, they're just they wanting results. You know, General Aker wants this, and they want that, and they want this city, and they want to bomb this one. They want you know whatever. And, J- and Gregory Peck is, oh, yeah, this is what we got to do. And then he starts seeing it firsthand, and, and he becomes a, a product of his own 
you know, um, regulations for this, for the, these high standards he sets for this bomb group that he takes over. And so it's, it's a really good flick. I mean, there's a lot of good action. And one of the neatest things about that movie, a neat little fact about it is they actually had a guy who crash landed a B-17 strictly for the sake of the movie. That makes me it was, sad. What a waste of a plane. <laughs> well, I, it, I mean, the way he came, it was, he just belly landed. He just, sure. you know, lands gear up. And he takes out a few tents, you know, he just belly lands in the grass, perfect landing. So, I mean, he probably didn't completely keep it from being airworthy, but... That makes me sad. Back. That's a waste of a perfectly good GT. <laughs> well, I mean, it's 1949. There's like 10,000 of them sitting in Kingman, Arizona at this time, right? Yeah, I wish so, I had one. But to do that for a movie, you know you got one take. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and I just... That's pretty cool. And I'm really... I really enjoyed the series. Uh, they, they came out with a series in the 60s, and you'll see Burt Reynolds and yeah. guys like that. You know, Roddy McDowell will show up as guest stars, but I, I like I like that movie. That's according, to, according to IMDb, the storyline, in the story of the early days of daylight bombing raids over Nazi Germany, General Frank Savage must take command of a hard luck bomb group. Much of the story deals with his struggles to whip the group into, quote, disciplined fighting unit in spite of heavy losses and withering attacks by the German fighters over their targets, actual combat footage is used in the tense war drama written by K.C. Hunt. So that's kind of cool that this is another one of those movies that uses real real uh, war footage. Yeah, it's a lot of footage from the William Wyler um, documentary he did with the Memphis Bell. Do, 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 do. I'm going to go... Um, I thought it was a, a cool movie. Um, it's going to be going over to the uh, Russian side. A lot of subtitles. I'm sure the reenactors amongst us will nitpick this movie apart. But I remember watching it before I got into reenacting and right after playing uh, World at War, the Call of Duty series. And when you play the campaign mode on the Call of Duty series, there's this mission where you're a sniper and you're Cytus Fountain. And you got to shoot some generals and take over. And I watch this movie called Enemy at the Gates. And lo and behold, that same exact scenario played out. And it's about this famous Russian sniper. And I can't remember his, his name. But um, I thought it was a, a pretty damn interesting movie. And it's not oftentimes that we have a... World War II movie cast with Americans and Europeans portraying Russians and doing it yeah. pr pretty well. Are you familiar with that one? I did. That is a good one. That is a good movie. Let's see. Enemy at the Gates 2001. For those of you who are um, Sons of Anarchy fans, it does have um, R Ron Perlman in it. Jude Law plays Vasily. Or Vasali. Uh, let's see a real quick storyline breakdown. World War II and the fall of Stalingrad uh, will mean the collapse for the whole country. The Germans and Russians are fighting over every block, leaving only ruins behind. The Russian sniper Vasily Ziatev, forgive me for slaughtering your name, um, but anyhow, he stalks the Germans, takes them out one by one, thus um, hurting the morale of the German troops. And he is a famous, uh, I think he had like one of some of the highest kills of any sniper on the Russian side in real life. Ed Harris is in this. Um, Bob Hopkins, like I said, Ron Perlman, 
um, a majority of the people in this are like, like I said, Americans or Europeans. And, um, it's a pretty, once again, we don't see a whole lot of the Russian side of the war, especially as Americans, you know, we got a lot of D-Day stuff. We have a lot of the Pacific stuff now, not back then. We got some movies covering Africa, you know, the desert Fox and all that stuff. Some, a few, but yeah. very rarely do we see coming out of Hollywood, at least a Russian portrayal of what, what happened on their side. So that's a good one that I recommend, especially if you want to switch things up a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go. We'll, we'll do maybe one or two and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, give me another worst. What's a bad one for you? Uh, hmm. it, and now keep in mind, it can be, you know, not as good as you were expecting. Kind of like so, did with the thin red line. I'm trying to think of the name of it, and it's actually it was actually another John Wayne flick, um, uh, and he's he's a sailor in it. I want to say it's maybe Kirk Douglas is a co-star in it, and this is uh, the worst. It was just yeah, it was just not. Uh, uh, maybe look up in maybe it was in harm's way. It, it was just—I don't think. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think it was in harm's way. Hold on, I really need a pr- producer in harm's way. Nineteen sixty-five. <laughs> um, let's see. Yes, it had uh, John Wayne and Kirk Douglas. Um, I think that's what I'm thinking of. Let's see here. Um, you know, it's so sad. IMDb. They're they're um, they're they have such a we don't want to offend anybody sort of ranking. When it, like all their movies have like um, 7.5. So I want to go to Rotten Tomatoes, which has a more accurate kind of, if you will, rating system. I mean, if they think a movie sucks, they're going to tell you a movie sucks. In Harm's Way movies, there's actually three of them with that name. Uh, In Harm's Way, 1965, John Wayne, Kirk Douglas, Patricia Neal is, has 38% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is officially rotten. <laughs> Audi- that's what the that's what the uh, top critics audience score is eighty one. So the audience, the people who don't know a whole lot, they give it an eighty one percent. They're not agreeing with Jeff, but uh, the Rotten Tomatoes gives it a thirty eight percent. Yeah. Thin red, just for fun. Let's see what they give Thin Red Line. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, it's fresh with eighty percent, both audience and critics. Wow. I just don't see it, man. Yeah. Uh, the storyline for that movie, according to the IMDb, on patrol on the morning of December 7, 1941, while commanding a cruiser, Captain Tory receives word of the attack on Pearl Harbor. His orders are to find the Japanese forces and to attack it. The film tells the story of three families during the outbreak of World War II. And you're just, it just, was it just bad acting? Was it bad production value? Uh, yeah, a little bit of both. I mean, it's tough to say that John Wayne was bad in it. It was just not very convincing. And, and I, I even want to say that there was like, they alluded to uh, like a rape scene on the beach by Kirk Douglas. Oh. Like it was just like, what are we doing? And, and actually, <laughs> if I remember correctly, um, was it who, who played Nimitz in the old Midway movie? Was it, uh, Henry Fonda? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. I think he shows up in that one also playing Nimitz, which kind of blew me away because that's like 10 years prior to the Midway film. Um, that, that was the best part of the movie. 
<laughs> but yeah, it just not what I thought it was going to be at all. And no, I'm not, I'm not going to bring up Pearl Harbor because we all know it sucks, but for what it's worth, Rotten Tomatoes, the critics gave it out of 194 reviews. It's at 24%, which is rotten. <laughs> and the audience has it at 66%, which is barely fresh. Yeah. Um, now, I've talked in the past on here about how I wasn't a fan of The Longest Day. Um, I, I don't know. I just thought it was not that great. The Longest Movie. Yeah. Well, that... <laughs> well, and, and, and as we've said, Ignacio, my whole beef was that obviously the airborne helmets were horrible, but the fact that everybody and their grandmother, with the exception of John Wayne, carried a Thompson submachine gun <laughs> meant... He only wanted to carry an M1 was John Wayne because he needed to use it as a crutch. But that's that's not the one I want to bring up. I'm trying to. Th- um, there was another one that I was going to kind of pull up, kind of pull a not. You know, it's not as bad as I want to say it was. Um, oh, what movie was it? A Bridge Too Far. No, that was one that was slow going for me. Yeah, really. Yeah. Uh, what the hell was it? It was on the tip of my tongue. I was I had it all queued up when uh, we were talking. Um, I had it here in a list in front of me here. Do, 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 do. What? I mean, it? I'll be honest. There's actually some pretty good movies that were made during the war. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. You know, Gung Ho is one that stands out to me. Randolph Scott. Um, Guadalcanal Diary. With uh, William Bendix, uh, Richard Jackal, of course. You know, Richard Jackal's the 16-year-old kid in, like, every World War II movie for 20 years. Um, those are both pretty good. But, of course, like in Guadalcanal Diary, you know that they're, you know, T6 Texans with meatballs painted on them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but a lot of that stuff, especially the newer the movies, we have to kind of let some of that go just because the unavailability Right. Um, this one isn't a horrible movie. This one I'm going to pull an audible and going to call the most disappointing post movie research ever. <laughs> and this, okay. this will make sense here momentarily. Are you familiar with 2008's The Defiant? Defiance. Defiance got, uh, let's see here, it came out in 2008. It's 58 with the critics. Um, let me give you the rundown of Defiance on IMDb. Basically, it's about um, Defiance 2008. Here we go. Um, this stars Daniel Craig, Lee Shriver, Jamie Bell, um, who's another couple of names you might recognize on here. Um, here's a storyline. On the run and hiding in the deep forest of then German-occupied Poland... Uh, the four Beliski brothers find, an, uh, find the impossible task of foraging for food and weapons for their survival. They live not only with the fear of discovery, contending with neighbors, no, neighboring Soviet uh, Palestines and knowing, I'm sorry, and knowing whom to trust, but also take responsibility for looking after a large mass of fleeing Polish Jews from the Germans at wartime machine. Now, this is based on a true story. You lost me, dude. Basically, you got four brothers who are running from um, the Russians. I'm sorry, they're in German-occupied Poland. They're hiding in the woods from a bunch of uh, Germans, right? They don't want to be inscripted into fighting and or going to concentration camps. 
And while out in the woods, they find a large group of Polish Jews hiding out because they don't want to go to concentration camps either, right? And as you can imagine, this true story, what happens is they steal guns. They kind of go full Robin Hood and Merry Men where they basically scrounge up and become a a band of militia members where they're fighting for their, their freedoms. They're fighting to survive. They kill some Germans, steal some guns, shoot some more, steal more. And so now they're armed uh, Jews and um, Poles running through the woods trying to protect themselves. And it was a pretty interesting movie. Um, you know, it is what it is. But the reason I say it was the biggest post-movie um, research disappointment, uh, the main character played by, I think, Jamie Bell, because he's the youngest of the Belitsky brothers. He went on, <laughs> I did some research, because whenever I watch these movies that are based on true stories, I like to find one, the photographs of the people who really um, who really lived. And it turns out, one of these guys, you know, obviously they're the heroes of the movies. They saved the Jews from the, the Germans and, and all that stuff. And I'm trying to find, uh, trying to find it here. One of them went on to pull in like a senior swindle scam in Miami, Florida. <laughs> he was like robbing, like he's taking advantage of old people, like taking their social security checks and like <laughs> running off with his girlfriend. So here's this movie you just watch like for an hour and a half. These guys are heroes. They're saving the the, Jew, the Polish Jews on the run from the Germans. And then one of these dickheads, when he gets to be like six, he's out swindling people out of their social security checks and ends up going to prison. I'm like, oh, come on. You're supposed to be the hero. You're just an asshole that hasn't bloomed yet. <laughs> it was so sad. I was like, come on. Are you kidding me? Oh, it was so ridiculous. I can't remember which one it was. Uh, but yeah, it, it's just, I was like, oh, that's horrible. So let's uh, finish it off on a high note. La, 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 la. Uh, let's go with another good one that you would refer people to. Uh, what's a good movie that you would refer mm. people to? Um, I love the Memphis Belle. Man. Or TV series. I love the Memphis Belle. The one there two of them. Well, there, I mean, the, I mean the, the Warner Brothers. Okay, the, the one that came out in the yeah. late '80s, early '90s. Uh, yeah, it came out in 1990. Yeah, not like the actual William Wyler sure documentary, but yeah, the 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 movie. And you know, of course, we talked about that in the very first episode you and I did. But uh, you know, it's it's one that you know. It, if you got a girlfriend that kind of likes history or whatever, you make some popcorn, you watch Memphis Belle, she'll, she'll watch it with you. You know? Um, I mean, there's a thousand movies out there that are, that are good. Um, I, I was gonna, so Memphis Belle, I'll leave it with that, but there's one more I wanted to mention because you did talk about the Holocaust. Real quick, yeah. Memphis Belle, 67% with the top critics, 79% with the audience. For those not familiar, at the U.S. Army Air Force Base in England, the crew members of the B-17 bomber Memphis Bell prepare for their 25th and final mission into uh, enemy German territory. Bomber Captain Dennis uh, Dearborn, played by Matthew Modine, knows his mission is a dangerous one, but he is under pressure from the Army Public Relations uh, Lieutenant Colonel, played by John Lithgow, to earn a decisive victory for the Allies so they can push more war bonds is basically what it comes down to. Right, right. I love it. I mean, you know, there, there's a lot of familiar faces in that movie people are going to recognize. You know, of course, uh, the kid that played Rudy 
is the ball terror gunner and mm-hmm. Harry Connick Jr. When he was, I guess you could say at his prime, um, musically. Yeah. You know? That was his first acting role. Prior to that, he was just a pianist. Right. And right. A, and a crooner. Now, didn't you yeah. tell us on uh, the episode where we talked about this at length that the real crewmen thought it was important to use fictional characters in this movie because they didn't want to have the whole thing kind of shine on them. They're more, they, by using generic characters, it kind of gave credit to everyone who served for lack of better words. Yeah. Yeah. And you you can find that, you can read that. And and Robert Morgan told me that himself, you know, because I asked him the same thing. He said, geez, you know, why didn't it, it was just, you know, Robert Morgan, why is it Dennis Dearborn? <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and they still kind of made it like he was from, uh, you know, he met, well, they, they, they made it seem like he was Robert Morgan in, in, in the fact that he's, you know, his family had a furniture business, Nashville, North Carolina, even though Matthew Modine talked like he was from Boston in that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was named after his girlfriend that they met in Memphis on business, which is totally inaccurate. She's from Memphis, but they met Walla Walla, Washington. But it was a loose enough, you know, interpretation of a plane that a pilot named after his girlfriend. But, you know, they changed the nose art. Um, they changed the font, the way they wrote that spell on the aircraft. Um, they kept the same markings other than that. You know, you're going to have the same tail number, same aircraft identification letters on the side. Um, but, but for the most part, the nose, the nose art and the name of the aircraft were completely different. Yeah. And yeah, all the names of the crew were different. And, and Bob Morgan said, you know, it wasn't about us. Um, it, you know, it was about all the boys. It was about bomber crews, what they had to go through and how it was important that, you know, cause the Memphis bell, and, and we may have talked about this, like you said, at length in another episode and it's okay if people want to go back and watch the episode. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, there was no superlatives that were linked to the Memphis bell that the Memphis bell actually accomplished. It was not the first plane to fly 25 missions. It wasn't the first crew to fly 25 missions. Bob Morgan wasn't the first pilot to fly 25 missions in the Air Force. Nothing about it was accurate. And that may have been some of the motivation behind Bob Morgan to say, look, (laughs) we didn't really do any of these things. Um, And and lo and behold, his co-pilot was actually the first B-17 pilot to fly 25 missions. He would but, probably tell you the only thing they did was happen to be the crew that ended up with a film crew flying with him in real life. That's exactly what happened. And, and William Wyler actually took, he had a lot of footage from Hell's Angels, the B-17. And he just liked the look of the girl on the Memphis Bell. And he said, what's the deal with this? And then you come across, he meets Robert Morgan, who grew up with the Vanderbilts. Super wealthy, super well-to-do, and he's a son of a gun. He's a playboy. How do you give up a story like that? You know, so you kind of had to fudge it, and it worked. Sure, it goes down its history. Doesn't matter. It's like the closest thing. It's like your 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 task with producing this documentary, and you just stumbled across the closest thing to a Clark Gable in an Air Force pilot seat. Boom! There you go. He hung out with Clark Gable. Yeah. If you read Robert Morgan's book, he, I mean, he, they used to hang out at night, you know, down in London and stuff. So it was just too juicy for, for somebody like William Wyler to see the production value. And it didn't matter how many missions, you know. And, um, and when you look at uh, – when you watch the footage, you think that William Wyler is filming the 25th mission over Willemshaven, Germany. 
not at all the case. Um, I don't even think Willem Tommen was the 24th mission. It was like the 20, I don't know, you can look it up, but um, the the footage, most of the footage that he took of the guys at the seat and at all their different, you know, um, uh, stations, I guess, if you will, was all done over England well after they were done. Yeah. They were done with all that. He took them back up and, you know, got a close up of all that after battle station. So, yeah. And all the radio, quote unquote, radio chatter was just done in a recording studio back in Hollywood. Exactly. But who cares? It's a good movie. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to switch up just a little bit because I want to, I want to maybe annoy some people. Maybe that's something to generate us some emails to mail call at WTSPWorldWar2.com. Sorry, not sorry. I went to the theater and saw Dunkirk. <laughs> I'm like, okay. I was wondering if this was going to come up. <laughs> I'm watching it. And now I I used to be a huge movie buff back in the nineties. I had a huge collection of VHS. I was early on the Kevin Smith train, uh, all the Pulp Fiction stuff with Quentin Tarantino. I, uh, you know, I'm, I've watched lock stock and two smoking barrels and snatch all these movies with the whole jump scene sort of thing where the timeline moves around and I'm watching Dunkirk and I'm like, okay, it's daytime and they're on the boats. And it's daytime, he's in the plane, but now it's dark. Is he flying through an oil cloud? I, the whole the time-lapse thing just did not play out well. It just, to me, it seemed like a cluster F of trying to get what happened in that span of so many hours into a two-hour film that it just wasn't done in a easily observable way because once again i'm like why is it dark are they is he flying through an oil cloud i mean from the boats being hit it's just i i thought it was greatly overrated uh yeah and i i agree with you i i did see that in theaters it was cool how i got to see it because i was out in west texas outside of abilene for the 12th armored division reunion Mm -hmm. and had the opportunity to take the m3a1 Stewart tank out there and drive it around, demo it, shoot the coax, you know, fire a bunch of 37 Mike Mike, you know, yeah. uh, uh, blanks into basically their old chow hall that they've restored, what, where they used to, you know, at the old rifle range and everything, get to see these these uh, old veterans from 12th AD. And it just so happened that it came out that weekend, so we went into town and, and saw it. And, yeah, I mean, I, I think a little bit of, like, a disclaimer at the beginning would have been nice. I didn't know what the mole was. And I didn't know anything about Dunkirk except a bunch of British dudes got pushed off the continent mm-hmm. and it didn't look good there for a while, you know? And I think that was when, is that when Churchill kind of had his famous quote, like this isn't the end. Yeah. Isn't even the beginning of the end, but it's the end of the beginning. Yeah. So that's about all I knew about Dunkirk. But if they would tell you like everything that you see here happens in the span of a day, Okay, cool. Now I would get it. I know it may take people out of the immersion, but maybe a timestamp. Because the problem is, your pilots, obviously, they have their mask on, right? It's so hard It's hard to identify the pilots. And so when you have the, the Navy of British civilians and their commandeered ships heading that way, and they come across the plane that's floating in the sea with the guy who's the lead role on um, Peaky Blinders is on his thing, you're like... Was that one of the two main pilots? Is this a different guy? They all, that like yeah. after they get him on ship, then you realize, oh, he was that person. But 
is how come it's still daytime there? But when they shot shot him, (laughs) but when they just showed his buddy, it was still dark outside. And so the whole thing, the whole timeline just, I mean, it's hard to tell a story in a person in a interesting way about a bunch of people stuck on a beach. The, the storyline was there. It's just the way they chopped it up and yeah. delivered it. If it was, if they had a different editor in there and maybe who, and maybe production pushed the director a little bit and said, Hey, let's, you know, I don't know if they, I don't know if they uh, showed this to some people beforehand and did the survey. And I don't know if they, oh, what the hell they call that. But anyhow, they bring in just random people and have them watch it and get, get notes. But I don't know that if they would have just, I almost wish like the director's cut was re-edited. Just yeah. a little more straightforward. I, I think it was an interesting way to do it. And, and I think other, hopefully other movies will kind of adapt that way to tell a story, but just do it better. Yeah. You know, like I think they just tried to kind of pioneer something that just kind of fell flat, you know. Yeah, it's it's, it's just kind of like here's a bowl of soup. It's up to you to figure out what the ingredients are and where they go. But I mean, it was nice to see that story told, and it's always great to see new World War II movies with the modern day CGI and stuff. But right. um, like, if someone asked me what's a modern day war movie that came out in the last, you know five to eight years, I would say just go watch 1916. You know, it's World War One. It was done in a much better way. Yeah. But um I have not seen Jojo Rabbit. Have you seen that? I heard it's a spectacular movie. I guess it's kind of a comedic comedy kind of way of going about it, but I heard that's actually really, really good. And yeah. um but yeah that's pretty much gonna wrap up that. Um we want to hear from you guys. Let us know some of your worst and best movies. Email us at a mail call, WTSPWorldWar2.com. It's time to go anyhow because you can probably hear my daughter yelling at my dog. I don't know what's going on out there, but uh, it's getting to be that time of day. Jeff, you got anything coming up going on in your future? Uh, no, no. I'd like to talk about my trip out to Arizona and Pima County Air Museum the next episode. I'll, I'll, I'll push some pictures your way. It's a beautiful museum out there in Pima County, out, just outside of Tucson, uh, Arizona. It's a beautiful five building complex with a one building that's just dedicated to the 390th bomb group with a B-17 in there. But there's everything from a Wright Brothers um, reproduction aircraft to an SR-71, one of JFK's Air Force One aircraft, and a couple B-29s, everything in between. So I'd love to hit that up next episode. And um, No, I know I, it's I not World War II related too, but you went to uh, Tombstone, did you not? I I did. We yeah. talk about that. So, yeah. Um, yeah. But definitely, we'll try to get another episode out next week. Thank you guys so much for hanging out with us. As always, you can find us on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, Google Music, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever your fine podcasts are found. Or you can just find us like you probably already do at WTSPWorldWar2.com. I'm Don Abernathy. And uh, for my co-host, Jeff Jeff Copsetta, we want to say thank you guys for hanging out with us. And we will talk to you all next week. Cool, man. Thanks. Awesome. So next Tuesday, uh, I'm going to a hockey game. 